listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBTQ plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Joseph and talking about transracial adoption. Hi Joseph, lovely to have you here. Hi Tor, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Very welcome. Um, so let's have a chat um, a little bit about, first of all, I guess your background, because you've got so much different experience of this, um, that it'd be interesting to kind of go way back to when you were a child. And if you could maybe start by telling me a bit about that. Of course. So I myself was adopted as a baby um, at six months old, I believe. And I was the, the youngest of three adopted children. Um, I was adopted to two white, my parents are white, my mum my and dad, and my brother and sister were both adopted as well as, as babies. So I, you know, I'm now 46. So this was back in the late 70s. So I grew up all through the 80s and 90s through my childhood. What also I would also want to highlight was um, where I grew up was a very small village um, in the countryside. So for me, in terms of of uh, being dual heritage, um, there weren't really many people who looked like me in my experience of growing up and that kind of through primary school and through to secondary school and, and even in the village that I grew up in myself. So it was quite, um, I guess, from my experience, I always knew I was adopted. I don't think it was anything, it, it was ever... Um, kind of a secret because it needed to be there was always an understanding there and I guess it was quite a unique experience having white parents having an adopted brother and sister who themselves are also um, dual heritage and again that was quite a unique experience for us as a family growing up. Yeah I'm sure Um, because I also grew up in a very small village and I remember there being one black child at school and that was it. And that was throughout my schooling, including secondary school, there was Mm -hmm. one black child at school. And so obviously I experienced that as a white child, but I do remember just complete non-visibility of anybody from any other background, really. Everyone was from where we were from and their parents were and their parents were, you know. So I can imagine that must have been quite isolating, I guess. How old were you? when you realised that made you different or when you started to put kind of conscious thoughts to that? I feel like it was quite early on, actually. Probably, I think my, my some of my earliest memories um, are of going to play school when I was kind of about three or four. And I remember, yeah. uh, I remember being very conscious of it then. But as you said, you know, going through primary school, I think certainly within my class, I was the only person of any color I think there was one other there was a boy a year above me and I remember just it was it was us feeling quite unique in that regard but whilst you know I I have lots of positive you know thoughts and memories of my childhood you know growing up in the 80s uh in in a small country um town um you know I did experience quite significant you know, racism, and I know that happened across my brother and sister as well. And that that had quite an, an impact, I think, on me. I, I And it's interesting because from, you know, that that is something I experienced a lot more than I've ever experienced homophobia, interestingly. And I think it's mm. had, a, had a much 
deeper rooted impact on me. Um, and I think maybe that's because when I when I came out as gay and actually when I had the strength and everything, I was obviously older. I was I was at 19 at the time and and I was in London and maybe that was a difference. So I think so while I have lots of really positive memories of my childhood, I do have significant periods of where I didn't feel I fitted in. I mean, I think it was all of the things at once of being dual heritage in a tiny country village, being gay and trying to figure out how that, you know, what was going on for me emotionally at the age of it being a teenager, all of that all together, you know, did, did have a bit of an impact on me. Yeah, I can imagine so. When you talk about experiencing racism when you were a child, was it overt racism like name calling and things or was any of it unspoken but you knew that's what it was I mean I think it was I think it was a combination of both I think there was there was significant name calling uh, I think there is you know the 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 word beginning with n uh, still to this day makes me feel quite sick if I ever hear it in regardless of whatever context it is but I think it's interesting because when I reflected I've reflected back on the kind of experiences of my childhood of that kind of unconscious racism that happened and for example let me give you an example and 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 this is something that recently only occurred to me kind of in the last few years when having a conversation about a nativity play and for example I, I can always remember that I was a wise man that carried frankincense and that's always stayed with me but it's interesting yeah. when I look back the other two people who were also wise men were the other two uh, children of colour in the primary school and when you look back at that and kind of think that was completely inappropriate yeah. um in the context of the period of the time, I I imagine that people didn't probably perceive it to be and they probably weren't intending it to be. But it's just when you then start reflecting on some of those experiences as a child, you actually think, well, hang on a minute, actually, that wasn't OK. And actually, there was that unconscious. What, what, I, would also, what I would equally say to that is my mother is fierce and was fiercely, <laughs> fiercely, fiercely protective um, of all of us. And, you know, um, and even to this day, I mean, she's nearly 80, but she is still even to this day. So I think in terms of protection from my mum and dad, I, I definitely I think as a family, we always felt that. But it, but I think it, it, it happened through primary school. I definitely felt it more at, at, um, at secondary school. And it was kind of, you know, it, it would be things name calling or, you know, the difference of, you know, I went through a period of I had quite curly hair. Actually, my hair is naturally quite curly, although you've you've known me for a few years, Tor, and you won't have ever seen it anything longer than very short. You've seen your hair longer than a yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think that's because I I I never felt comfortable with my hair as mm. an as part of my identity. And then I think when I was able to cut it all off, I felt happier with that. Now it's more a question of it covers up a lot of grey if I have it short. So there's a practical reason to it. But it's interesting that I never felt comfortable in how I, my appearance, I guess, in that regard. Yeah, I can, um, I can imagine that, yeah, with nobody else around you and so on and with that bullying going on. Yeah, absolutely. When you say your mum's fierce, I mean, fabulous. And <laughs> I want to meet her now. But did she help you name it as racism? Did did she help you to use that label? Because I guess I'm reflecting on Jackie, my wife, is Asian. And when we were first together, 
she would talk about experiences of racism that I had thought were horrible experiences, but hadn't, in my naivety, in my complete lack of understanding, in my complete white perspective, and guess white privilege perspective, hadn't realised were racist. So, for example, Jackie gets stopped all the time in shops and asked where things are. And in the early days of our relationship, she would say, that's racist. And I guess in those moments, it hadn't occurred to me that that's what it was, that essentially these were just assumptions that you glance at somebody standing still in a shop. And she will joke that if she stands still long enough, someone will ask her where something is. But that's who they assume that she is in a shop, is the shop assistant, as opposed to a customer, as opposed to anything else. And I guess as a white parent of my children of dual heritage, and I guess I, I question my own skill really in spotting racism when it happens and and I want to and I would try to but I do think actually you know there's many times when Jackie said that was dodgy that was racist and and I'm like oh bloody hell and thinking yeah that's I don't even know what the end of that sentence is really but I, I guess it was just a stark it's a stark reminder about my privileged perspective that just doesn't include that frame of reference at all and so I guess I'm interested in your ferocious mum and whether she was able to help you name racist experiences or whether you just simply learned that through living. No, I, I mean, I think they were very, I think both my parents were very clear about what racism was. And I think what, what the perspective I also had, because I was the youngest of three and my brother and sister were only a year apart and my sister's five years older than me. So I was very much the baby of the family. And I, my brother is dual heritage, but looks white. So my sister is very obviously dual heritage like myself. And, and I think experienced quite a lot, even mm. more if you think five years, even before. So she's, we're talking about the seventies. And I think there was a lot that went on and my brother stepping in and really having to, to get step into situations that happened at school, primary school, secondary school. So I think by the time I came along, I think a lot of the challenges had probably happened in the family. And I just think from that from that regard, maybe my parents have probably understood and learned a lot from themselves as being parents of, of, of you know, dual heritage children. So I just, so I think they were very clear with me about what, what was right and what was wrong. But also, as I said, my, you know, if things weren't right my mum would would come in and be very she would not be afraid to kind of explain to people exactly what she thought of what they had done or what was right or what was wrong and and actually and I you know and I and I kind of and as I say that always made me feel very safe but I think I think if I when I talk to my parents now and it's interesting to talk to them on reflection because obviously they're you know they adopted children I know obviously we've adopted a child and we can we have that kind of we share that experience but in a different way but it's it but it's in a, in a way there's those things where you are picking up challenges in different ways so obviously there's ele- elements of challenge that we have with um you know adopting and fostering and adopting a child that has had significant trauma versus a, a child um, back in the 70s that you're adopting as a baby, but has had growing up in a very kind of non-diverse environment, as it were. Yes. Yeah, I think adoption going back a few decades 
is almost unrecognizable from adoption. Now they're so very different to each other as as systems and so on. Here you talk. Um, I don't know if it's a book that you're familiar with. It's called Red Dust Road by Jackie Kay. And um, so she's a lesbian poet and um, she was adopted. So I think she's dual heritage, but she was adopted by a white family in Scotland. And again, it was reminded of it because she kind of describes her mom as absolutely ferocious. Her mom was very left wing, almost falling off the left wing, you know, in terms of um, uh, her politics and stuff, absolutely campaigning and just ferocious. But the the book documents her journey to meet her birth father and just culturally what that meant for her and in terms of her own identity, what that meant for her. But it's interesting as she describes the journey she was on as a child. Um, I think she had a brother. She certainly had a sibling as well. And so talks about their journey, but also the journey that her parents went on. I'm guessing it would have been a decade or two before you were adopted, you know, so even going back a bit more. And um essentially how her parents were judged as well for having chosen the children that they chose and a sense of almost them having huge quotes around this but taking the children that nobody else would have wanted and the kind of the awakening that her parents had to go through about how you how you fight that prejudice as a family and stuff so just hearing the ferocious mom angle reminded me a lot of that book yeah no I I think that's I think that's um I think that is true, and I think there, I think there were those, those that sense of feeling for my parents because I know that when they moved, so when they had my brother and sister, they they lived elsewhere, and then they moved a year before I came along. Literally, I mean, literally, it's in the middle of nowhere, um, so they weren't known to that kind of village, and you know, yeah. you know. <laughs> they're very much into they're very integrated into the village and they definitely integrated into it uh, in into it well but I know actually that comment that you're just saying I do know from speaking to mum and dad that they definitely there was an element of that experience from some elements but equally I would also argue that you know and there are people who've been friends of my mum and dad's that I've known all my life who are incredibly close supportive and and didn't share those views and I I think it's going back to that going back to the village now is a very different experience it's a it's a kind of it's you know 2024 it's a very different place but it but it's interesting because I do wonder our own thoughts of moving outside of London and that's something to consider of whether that would be appropriate and what would the experience be for our son um and I'm not sure I would want him to have that experience and I where we obviously we live in London I feel it, it, it it's better for him and that's our decision but also having lived in the countryside for 18 years of my life there's no way I'd really want to live there again to be honest with you so yeah yeah it can get a tiny bit boring yeah. <laughs> I can definitely confirm that can I ask about your own connection to your own heritage and cultural background and so on and what that journey looked like for you and I guess what that looks like now yeah I mean it it was it wasn't something that we really were given um an opportunity to really explore it was I mean I I never um and I never have taken the opportunity to kind of look or explore into my um family background in in much detail I know enough about my 
birth mother, there was very little information about my birth father. Yeah. Only, I mean, my, my birth mother was 16 when she had me, so she was incredibly young. Yeah. And then, and then for my, for my, I mean, I kind of say, I kind of look back at this in a kind of slightly, I'm slightly smiling kind of way because it was it was really uncomfortable for my parents but I oh I can remember they took us to a Caribbean kind of workshop kind of festival place I can't really remember much because I must have been only about six or seven and it was just you know my middle class white parents and just a kind of a whole you know just and they they were the odd ones out and they and they and you know and I very well meaning they took us there to really be able to kind of explore part of our heritage and I remember a lady calling me up on stage to kind of and she put this stuff through my hair this relaxant stuff and gave me an afro comb and I remember coming away feeling really quite it was the first time I'd had um, an Afro comb or I knew what it was and I felt like yeah. I'd belong. But it, it, I think for them it was, I don't think it was something that they, they really were able to kind of do or access or really felt very out of their comfort zone. And, and I don't think for them there was any degree of support around this is how you might, this, this is what you need to be able to do and this is how you need to support someone's cultural identity or anything like that. There wasn't anything. They were kind of leading it blind in, their, in the best way they could. And that was kind of, you know, I think maybe fundamentally they made a decision that, that they wanted to keep us loved, warm, safe and all of those kinds of things. So I didn't really, wasn't really given the opportunity as much to kind of go into that identity. But I do, one of the things that really struck me was the sense of not having the visual identity. And what's interesting is, so I never never had that within my family. My brother and sister don't, we all look very different. And I never have that. And it's interesting because now with my my adopted son, I have, we have that a lot more. And people naturally find it more surprising that he's not actually my natural son than and and he gets a lot of that he gets a lot from that and I do Mm. because it's not something I've ever you know it's, it's been a very foreign part of my childhood and my familial kind of um structure as it were yeah and I've heard people saying to adoptive parents oh your child looks just like you and I think in the end some people sort of conclude that it must be mannerisms and turn of phrase Mm. and how you raise your eyebrow and stuff you know because clearly it isn't genetic but I do think we can sort of become visually a family in ways that are not just about looks you know so yeah so that was sort of your journey through your adoption and then you went on to adopt so can you sort of Talk me through that. You're partnered, aren't you? So tell me whose idea it was, who's to blame, and uh, and then we'll sort of go from there. Well, I mean, actually, it was my partner's suggestion originally to start fostering. I think mm-hmm. we we came to a point in our we've been together coming up 27 years this year, so we've been together a, a, a long time. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, we get a carriage clock. Um, I mean, in gay, someone said in, in gay years, like dog years. So it's kind of like hundreds yeah. of years, isn't it? Um, also, in my head, 27 years ago is about 1980. And of course, it it's about 1997. So I'm just going to have a little cry about when that was. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I always, I always say 97. It was, it was a good year for so many reasons. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, in terms of the change for us as, um, you know, as, 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 you know, in terms of our rights and things like that. And also it was the last time that the UK won the Eurovision Song Contest. So I always think of it as a, as a really, you know, as, as a really choice year 97, but we kind of, I think I'd, I'd had a massive change in career and I, and I think my partner looked at what I did and really envied some of that degree of kind of working with people and making that kind of difference to people's lives and and yeah. just started talking about we talked about having children many years before and it just knew, it isn't something that we really thought would, would was going to be formed part of our relationship and then we started fostering um initially and initially we what we initially were looking for a, a a younger child at the age from the age of about five to eight to foster and actually yeah. we weren't we didn't really get any um any placements of that age so we kind of expanded up we kind of had a a couple of placements of of teenagers and and they ended for different various different reasons and then we and then we were initially we actually did respite with uh, our our son so he was in a he was in a foster placement and um, we start initially started doing uh, respite, and then actually, I think everyone decided that actually it would be better for him to kind of come over to us. And and I think very quickly we kind of we matched very very quickly. Um, uh, um, I actually I, I remember I remember showing his photo to my mother on my 40th birthday we were out having a meal and she just burst into tears and I don't know if she kind of knew that that was going to be where it was going to end up but it was I don't know it 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 felt like it was meant to be so we we started fostering and he was already he'd, he'd already gone through kind of being ready to be adopted so that process had already started and so we after it couldn't have been only probably six months maybe we made a decision that we wanted to it wanted it to be more permanent so we started to have conversations with the local authority um and then we started the we restarted the process I mean what I should say going back in time is to become a foster carer you have to go through as much uh, in terms of checks in terms of um, I think the form form F form F yeah, and you that was quite an intense process in terms of talking to our families and talking to our friends and talking to us individually and 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 all of that was it was a very robust process and a lot of training that we did with the fostering agency as well uh, before we got to the point where we were approved by panel. So then when we moved into the adoption what was helpful was that they had a lot of the information already, but we still had to go through the process. Now, what the difference for us is obviously we'd already kind of matched and we'd already gone through. 
one one of the things that I would say I think at, at the time felt quite um you know being a being a foster carer there's a lot of scrutiny you don't have parental responsibility so you are liaising a lot with social workers you have the virtual school you have a lot of uh people involved in the kind of um there's a multidisciplinary team involved in in the support of the child you know i think we were we were lucky we had the you know our son had a really good social worker i mean a really good social worker we had really good virtual school and he he also had a very good advocate so i think we 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 had a good team and and they were very good at le- allowing us to kind of lead on those decisions really there wasn't we didn't really have any conflict in that regard and whilst there was a lot of kind of reporting and a lot of a lot of those meetings when we moved into the adoption and a lot and all of that fades away because obviously you have parental responsibility it gave us a real an understanding and knowledge of our rights our child's rights and what schools or for example schools would be a big one for me what they are being need to be held to account for and what we are able to access and I talking to um, other people who'd gone straight into adoption I'm not sure that they had that breadth of understanding of knowing what their rights were and what their children's rights were as well so in that regard I think it gave us a very more seamless transition because the child was already you know our son was already with us but then also we knew what we were what we what we could expect but also what we would need to do to advocate as well in that regard yeah you describing what you knew at that stage does seem vastly greater than what I knew at the stage of adoption because we didn't go via fostering so yeah I can see what a strength that would be and I guess especially for a child of that age who's you know already in school and so on to to know the system so well must have been really really strong what was the time scale then between being respite foster carers where you'd take a child for just like a weekend or a week through to applying to adopt you know how how quickly did you change that plan so I think we must have we did respite it was in the March so then our son came to us permanently as a foster placement in the June so it took that meant meant a period of time and then from there I would say it was about it was between six to nine months where we made that decision that this was going to be you know that we wanted it to be permanent that we we felt like it we you know very quickly felt like a family you know connected with us and and interestingly one of the things i i've i've remember this very clearly of one so he's of dual heritage and his his mother is white and he still has connections with his uh with his uh grand grandmother and uncle and they're both white but what he he really wanted, and I remember reading this, was that he wanted to be placed with someone of colour because he really wanted that identity, and that, and and he'd never had that experience e- even when before he was in care because his father wasn't around. Yeah. So it it was really interesting that that was something that he really um, that he wanted, and I think that that you know as he's becoming a teenager now i can see how that identity really is is quite 
you know, they're going through that period of trying to figure out what their identity is. And I really, he really feels comfort and uh, a sense of belonging from that. And I know that that's quite important to him. Yeah, I think that's a really nice thing that he was able to articulate that at that age. Mm. And then that it was able to be found for him because we know that a lot of children who are black or dual heritage are not able to have that option available to them, certainly not for foster care, because foster care, you know, they're just in desperate need of more foster carers. There are so few available. And then even for adoption, we still know um, that children who are black or from minoritized ethnic groups wait the longest. And um, if if the agency is seeking a match for them in terms of their ethnic background or cultural background, then they might wait even longer. And so it's really nice that your son was able to articulate that and then get it. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So you've got that perspective from both ends, I guess, you know, from having been that child and from now raising that child, you know? I wonder how important you think it is that agencies prioritise cultural and ethnic matching, given all the matching criteria that they have to consider. I'd, I'd be interested in your opinion on on that and should they wait for that match or not? I know it's a really difficult question. It's, it's interesting. I think, I think what, what, I mean, I'll come back to the point of, so our son came to us at seven as a foster placement but I know from when we were, from at the time um, that we were looking to adopt that he was rare to be adopted out at that age, and I guess that to me made me think, "Wow, that's that's really sad that there are children of who potentially are deemed to have too much challenge or too old." So for me. That kind of that context, I would say, if someone is willing to to adopt and to provide love and care and and um, guidance, then then it better to make sure that 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 happens. But it's interesting because I I see from from two perspectives of I see how important. I mean, it's interesting because for me, I I was adopted as a baby. So my experience of anything to do with my birth family, there isn't any. And then equally, I would also say on reflection, I would have wanted more understanding of my heritage. I feel that's something that's interesting that I feel like I'm probably exploring more now with my son. Now for him, his experience of he came into care when he was six, he has a knowledge of his you know, birth mother specifically. And, you know, one of the most positive things is we have an unbelievably amazing relationship with his grandmother and uncle, as in an extended family kind of um, aspect. So, which is an amazing thing for him and for us to have. So it's really important um, for him to be able to have that kind of understanding his identity of where he's from, from a birth family perspective but also his his heritage and he is very keen to he wants to go to Jamaica I've explained to him that maybe when he's done his GCSE so we can go and it's a bit cheaper and not in the school holidays is something <laughs> that I definitely would explore but it is definitely something he's 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 very keen very keen to do so I think to answer your question in a roundabout kind of way I think it very much depends 
I, d- I don't think, I think children's, you know, childhood goes so quickly. And I think if you wait too long, then you could be, and, and adopting and fostering processes take so long as well. Fundamentally, someone, you know, you could be a year or so down the line, and that's a massive part of a child's time of development. So I think, so I think it's, I, I think it very much depends. I think, I think from, um, it depends on the context and it depends on, I think, the age of the child and the need. But I think I've always felt that someone wanted me so much and I'm not saying my parents are, you know, my mum always said to me, you won't get everything right. But my mum and dad loved us to absolute bits and they gave us an amazing life and opportunity. And I thank them for that. And I'm not yes. sure I would say, well, if I wouldn't have had them if they had been any other different people. Yeah, I can understand that. Absolutely. And yeah, I take what you're saying that ultimately the children who are waiting need families. And I guess you could always wait more, couldn't you? You could wait for a family that's slightly more ideal and slightly more ideal and slightly more ideal. And even then it would only be ideal on paper. Mm. You know, it sounds like you landed in the perfect family for you. And that, but I also think, I think that the system could do more work to better prepare people for transracial adoption and specifically white people, because for all that both, me and Jackie are transracial adopters in that our son has different backgrounds to us both. Ultimately, ultimately Jackie has lived experiences of racism and I do not. And so I think she brings that for our children in a way that I never can. And I don't feel like, well, I don't, I don't think there was any prep. We were asked some questions, which we answered well enough, but honestly, well enough wasn't very deep we really weren't hauled over the coals at all on how we prepared what we knew you know I think provided we sort of said well we'll go to some local festivals and honestly that was probably about what was said and I think I think even then I was aware that you know it was it was just the answer that had to be said but I do I do with hindsight think that could have been a lot better you know and I've been doing another course separate uh, to work and there's been a lot more in-depth work on racism and institutional racism and all of the things that flow from that. And it's for the first time in my life that I'm hearing some of this stuff and reading some some different books and things that are really challenging of, um, I guess, the bubble that I've been allowed to live in by virtue of my own background. And so I feel like kind of... I don't know, more challenge at that stage, more prep at that stage, more robust challenge at that stage would have been a really good thing. And yeah, I I feel that 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 would be beneficial. But again, I guess, you know, resources are stretched. They prep you with what they prep you, but it does feel a little bit like it's not ever so robust at that stage. Yeah, and and actually picking up on your point of experience, it's interesting because obviously my, my partner's white and... I, you know, when I I talked to you at the beginning of the discussion about my experience of of racism, and interestingly, it, it's not something I've largely experienced um, in my general day to day. You know, in the, in the sector in the organisation I work in, and and it's not something that ever comes up. And it and it actually happened recently at a theatre, and. 
and I and when we talked about it, my partner wasn't fully didn't fully understand exactly what happened. And when I explained it, and I and I said, you know, and it was it, what it was is I we went to sit down at, and in a theatre, and this woman actually turned around and said, I I don't want to sit next to him. I want to sit next to the woman, and um and it and it was the way she looked at me, and it was yeah. and I and I know exactly what that looks looks like. And I was having yeah. to explain to my partner, I said, if you've never had that experience of how people look at you just because of how you look, I said, it's, it, you can't understand how it, it feels. And I said, I don't mean that in a, you know, in a, in the, you're not being empathetic to it, but it, but it is that. And it's interesting because one of the people we were with said, you know, being aware of that about her son, who's black, but also about, our son who's of dual heritage and what his experience might be and I and it made me think well I, I'm a 46 year old man and I'm quite robust in my experiences of life that things don't really be- they kind of bounce off me um you know dual heritage and gay you know there's quite a lot to kind of contend with and and just for him you know what what's his experience going to be like how am I going to kind of preparing because it still exists it doesn't just yeah. because we live in London it doesn't mean it, it doesn't exist elsewhere. And I, and it made me very conscious of that to think about how am I going to help prepare him for kind of those things that will happen and what how else happens as he gets older. Yeah. And I think um, it's a story I've told on the podcast before, but um, my eldest son's first experience as racism of overt racism was when he was about four or something in the local park. And, some other child said, I'm not playing with you because you're brown. And it was like somebody burst this perfect little world. You know, it was like it hadn't touched him or at least hadn't touched him overtly face to face in that way. And it was, it was chilling. And again, you know, I'll acknowledge this sort of comfortable position that I'd held the fact that, you know, I was able to live to that stage in my life and not have been chilled in that way. And then, you know, I've heard black parents talking about the point they have to give their children the talk about the police and that the police might not be on your side should it come to that. And then um been watching that. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a documentary on at the moment, the name of which I've helpfully forgotten, but it's essentially about um police corruption and the police investigating corruption within the police. And, you know, again, having watched the first two episodes, it's been chilling in a way that you know, I guess that people who are black or from minoritized ethnic groups will be all too familiar with. And it's absolutely shocking, even knowing about the institutionalized racism in the police and so on. It's still absolutely shocking. And so, yeah, it's, I guess for me as a white parent of dual heritage children, it's continually eye-opening and honestly I am embarrassed about how little I knew I am I am shocked at having read some of the stuff how incredibly recent it is how incredibly ongoing it is and so on but yeah that's that difficulty of how do you prep your children for that I don't know that I have a good answer for that because ultimately it's a horrible thing and I guess we want to protect them from all the horrible things and wrap them up and never make them go there you know yeah, no, I, completely, and I think, but it, but it's as I said, it's one of those things that's not really um, crossed my mind as much, just because 
it's not really been something that I've felt I've experienced um, more in my adult life in, in terms of where I've, where I live and, and you know, the, the people I work with and things like that. And I guess it just, but just from, from my son's perspective, and it was interesting because I was thinking, why, why was I oblivious to it? And, it, and it, when we were talking, it, it reminded me of um, the time I got stopped driving when I was 17. This sounds like a very, like, do you know, kind of one of those stories, but I will say. So I was driving. <laughs> I will name drop. I was driving. Myling Class was a friend of mine at the time. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> and she was in the car as well at the time. And we were driving, and I was, what, 17? And I got stopped by the police. And and again, it's one of those things that on reflection, I, I remember asking him why so he said, Well, you don't look like you should be driving this car. Now, you know, on reflection, I'm thinking, wow, that's me. Really... But I think at the time, and I don't know if this is something I think my mum mum and dad were so kind of that if anyone I just had no concept of fear because I thought if if I go and my mum and dad will just come in and sort this kind of stuff out. So it didn't really, that, that, those kind of things didn't, didn't really, they kind of bounced off me a little bit. And it's more when I've got older and I've kind of thought, wow, you know, actually those things aren't okay. But I was either kind of ignorant to them or I just didn't have the strength of thinking, well, I'm better than that. So I, I doesn't, it doesn't really, I, I don't know if that's something my mum specifically more my mother gave me in terms of the strength. But it, but as I say, when when you come to kind of now coming to my own child, I have to think about you know, I'm, I, and I'm sure he's seen me quite fierce, especially with his school. I can assure you, um, <laughs> as as my partner says, I go full Alexis Colby into the school, and I have done that on several occasions. But um, but you know, just he's just his experience and what what that's going to look like. And I know he's at his previous secondary school. There, there was there was racism, and that that happened, and the N word and things like that. And I just thought, in this day and age, what what's going on? But we've had to have those conversations. But it's more as a young man of color, you know, when when I'm not there to kind of sit and protect him, what's his experience going to be like? And I and I guess it's just like you say, preparing for that and. I do think, coming back to the point you were saying about um, kind of transracial adopting, or, or, or uh, you know, I think it. I think there is an element of pre- of lack of pre- preparation. I agree with you, and I and I even think from our perspective, I don't think there was still enough conversation about what we should be doing, and I think still a lot of it is led by my son about what he'd like to do or you know foods he'd like to try or different things he'd want to do and and I think more I think if if I was to ask my parents I imagine they would probably say there was a lot more that could be done to support them in supporting us as we grow up. Yeah I think I think that's a really good summary of it actually and I mean we do know that as I said black and minoritized ethnic children are going to wait the longest and the chance of them being matched with a foster carer who shares their cultural and ethnic background is slim. The chance of them being matched with an adopter who shares that is also fairly slim. So we need more black adopters and foster carers to come forward. But also we need people who are from all cultural and ethnic backgrounds, but who are willing to do the work, I guess, to come forward 
because those children need homes and they're sitting there right now and I'm on a committee that looks at some of the stats. So can you imagine a stats committee? How exciting. But um, it looks at the stats and it is, you know, to see the children who are waiting the longest and that the system is is still very slow for. It's really sad because, like you said, childhood goes fa- so fast. Yeah. And um, so I guess that's why we want to have this conversation specifically to encourage people to to come forward, to push themselves forward as foster carers, as adopters, and, you know, to also have conversations about what do we need to learn? What should we be reading? What should we be talking about to try to improve all of that? Before we finish, is there anything that you have as advice for people who are thinking about fostering or adopting or going, you know, <laughs> crazy at their school? Um, is there anything that you want to kind of give as advice? That it's incredibly worthwhile and you know it's it is incredibly rewarding it's it's very hard work but it is it's an incredibly fulfilling thing to do both the fostering and then and and the adoption my my advice is though is to know what your child is entitled to what your rights are what you have to do and actually you know I guess I, I guess I still don't feel that there's enough certainly with schools and things that understand significant childhood trauma, that understand um, that. So you do, my advice is you do have to be prepared to fight and advocate for your child. You have to embrace that. Um, And actually when you join things like New Family Social and you sit and talk to peers, you understand that you are all doing that kind of stuff. And that gives a lot of strength. So that would be my, my, my advice to everyone. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been ever so nice to talk to you. Thank you, Tom. I'd like to thank my guest today, Joseph. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next time with more guests and more tea.